Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we discuss the invisible battlefield. Before I introduce my guest, I want to thank our sponsor, Mercury Systems. Mercury Systems is a global commercial technology company serving the aerospace and defense industry. The company delivers trusted, secure, open architecture processing solutions powering a broad range of mission-critical applications in the most challenging and demanding environments. Inspired by its purpose of delivering innovation that matters by and for the people who matter, Mercury helps make the world a safer, more secure place for all. To learn more, visit mrcy.com. My guest today is Mr. Brian Clark, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute. Brian is an expert in naval operations, electronic warfare, autonomous systems, military competitions, and wargaming. From 2013 to 2019, Mr. Clark was a Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, or CSBA, where he led studies for the U.S. Department of Defense, Office of Net Assessment, Office of the Secretary of Defense, and the Defense Advanced Research Products Agency, or DARPA, on new technologies and the future of warfare. Brian Clark recently released a report, the topic for today's episode, entitled The Invisible Battlefield, a Technology Strategy for U.S. Electromagnetic Spectrum Superiority. Brian, it's great to have you on Episode 2 of From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ken. It's great to be here with you. I want to get right into the report that I raised in your introduction, The Invisible Battlefield, a Technology Strategy for U.S. Electromagnetic Spectrum Superiority. Could you tell us a little bit about the the report, generally speaking, and the impact that you hope it has on the conversation that you just kind of went through in terms of where things might be breaking down and how we need to tra- better transition from the conceptual to how we invest in programs? So the uh, study, which we just released, grew out of study we did uh, two years ago now for DOD in response to congressional uh, direction to do a, a comprehensive assessment of where we are with regard to electromagnetic spectrum operations. So we did that study two years ago to come up with essentially some ideas on what would be an appropriate strategy to try to regain spectrum superiority in a world where you know, we were not necessarily making the, all the investments necessary to support that ourselves. That study uh, really highlighted the fact that programmatically, or I guess budgetarily, um, we're in a situation where the U.S. is behind the investments of countries like China and Russia. They're be able to target their systems against us. We don't have the time or money to try to meet them system versus system and regain spectrum superiority. So instead, we need to come up with a new strategic approach. And that approach is largely reflected in the electromagnetic spectrum superiority strategy that came out last year. So this study was really intended to follow on with that and say, okay, if we sort of revisit this idea of where we are with regard to our major adversaries, Russia and China, what technologies uh, should we be investing in to enable us to regain spectrum superiority? And it's you know trying to go beyond just simply saying, 
you know, we should be more agile in the spectrum, which is sort of how the last study left it and how the spectrum superiority strategy says. But actually to go into what are some specific technologies that are going to enable us to be more agile through the spectrum in a lot of different dimensions. And we highlighted a, you know, probably a dozen or so of those major technology areas. And to do it, we, we used a net assessment approach. So we kind of fell back in the Cold War. The U.S. was faced with a similar challenge where, yeah, you could try to outspend the Soviets, but uh, because of our geographic disadvantage, we were the away team you know, against a country that was basically right next door to the area where the conflict might happen. You know, we were you know, trying to uh, also you know, spend money on other things domestically so that there was, a, there was a constraint in how much we could really try to match the Soviets system for system. So net assessment allows you to step back and say, well, where are the areas where I can get an advantage that don't require me to basically comprehensively overwhelm my enemy in the spectrum? And, and so that approach was used here as well to identify what are the points of leverage where if we were to adopt technologies in certain areas, are we going to be able to create such a problem for, in this case, the Chinese, that they would be more likely to be deterred because they feel like they don't have that ability to control the spectrum like they've been trying to do? So, Brian, you've been around our community for many years. And in fact, you were a keynote speaker at our virtual summit just a couple weeks ago. So you, you know a lot about us and you know that we oftentimes struggle with our lexicon, the words that we use and their meaning. We have gone through a number of these words over the years to accurately describe the what I call the imperative of EMSO. Uh, for example, we use terms like dominate, control, advantage, superiority, domain, but these words mean something, especially when it comes to allocating resources and authority. In your report, you use the term EMS superiority. Can you discuss why you chose that word and what does it mean in the context of the report and what weight should it carry in making decisions on resourcing MSO? Yeah, Ken, that's a, that's a very important point. We in the EW community have, have done a not a great job of communicating to people outside the community what it is that we're saying we need to do and, and then they're how, how we're going to be able to accomplish it. So we used EM spectrum superiority in this report in the same way that we talk in other domains about maritime superiority or air superiority, meaning you have the ability to control the activities in a particular part of that domain or environment for a period of time when you need to such that you can prevent your adversary from denying you the, the ability to use that domain, and you can use it for your purposes more or less to the degree you need to. So it's it's a very temporal and it's a very limited sense of superiority. So it's not it doesn't mean that you have the ability to dominate any activities in the spectrum over a wide area. It doesn't mean that there's no conditions on your uh, ability to operate in the spectrum. It means you've got the ability to do what you need to do for as long as you need to do it, in a confined area where it needs to happen. But then after that, you may quickly lose that ability to control the spectrum. And that's an expectation because uh, not only are there adversaries that are contesting our ability to operate in the spectrum, there's also all these civilian users and commercial users that need to operate in there as well. And as we move towards an environment where dynamic spectrum sharing, dynamic spectrum allocation is going to be necessary um, and is already happening, uh, we're going to need to think about spectrum superiority in these very temporal, very constrained, limited terms. I want to pull the thread on everyone's favorite topic, the EMS as a domain discussion. There are many in our community, myself included, that believe in order for proper decisions to be made on authorities and resources, to make sure the dollars are going to where they need to go, to make sure leaders across the Department of Defense can compel action, you really need the domain designation. Recent doctrine and other guidance says that EMS is not a domain, but instead it's a maneuver space. 
is that sufficient? And does that give EMSO enough sway to say, okay, here's what we need to do across our joint force. Let's go out and do it. Well, it doesn't really. I mean, so the, I agree with those those proponents. You know, and I, I'm one of those proponents that you know you really do need to make the like, the spectrum of domain to be able to drive the the conceptual change, the kind of doctrinal changes, and then the organizational changes. That was our argument when in the study that we did for DoD was that so much of the existing processes and uh, authorities in DoD derive from certain things being domains that it would seem necessary to be able to make the spectrum of domain to make those follow-on changes uh, happen institutionally in DOD. Absent that, I, I think we still could achieve a lot of the changes necessary to reach EM spectrum superiority, but it'll, it'll have to be done in a more, you know, kind of ha- haphazard way, or it'll have to be done as a workaround. And you can already see how that's starting to happen. Uh, for example, in the sensing and communication world, both of those communities have pursued new technologies and new processes and concepts that are essentially you know, adopting some of the ideas that the spectrum is a domain and we need to think about you know, conflicted activities in it. So you're seeing that the communities within the EM spectrum operations are starting to individually do workarounds, and that would be less necessary if we'd made it a domain. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. 
this sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. You talk a lot in the report about China and Russia, obviously, is the two most obvious peer competitors in the report and how they've been assessing our vulnerabilities and making substantive reforms and how they're organized, they train and other equip activities. They present a series of asymmetries from simple geography to C2, technology innovation, EW deployment. But at the end of the day, these are two very different peer competitors. Different geopolitical dynamics, different ways of operating, different warfighting environments. You can go down the list, and you do in the report. Can you talk about the strain that this places on U.S. and coalition forces? Yeah, so that so that was part of the rationale behind using the net assessment approach because we did have these two very different competitors. I um, mean, the idea was, well, let's examine how we each pursue. What are our strategies? What are our what's our doctrine with regard to electromagnetic spectrum operations? You know, what are the capabilities and organizations that we each use to be able to pursue EM spectrum superiority? And identify those asymmetries between us so that they might be offering points of leverage. So, for example, like you mentioned, I guess one area where uh, China and Russia have a lot of similarities is in their organizational construct. So, obviously, they're very different countries and militaries, but they both have a kind of central electromagnetic warfare, in their case, organization at the top. You know, so the general staff of the Russian military has a electromagnetic warfare commander. That person is in charge of some strategic level electromagnetic warfare capabilities and forces. And then he drives a lot of the doctrine development and essentially establishes priorities for electromagnetic warfare being done by the services. Same thing in China. You've got the strategic support force, which offers this strategic level set of capabilities. It influences, but does not directly drive doctrine. There's another organization that does that inside the Chinese military. But And then with each of the services, they have their own electromagnetic warfare technology development and um, operating forces. And they push those capabilities down to a pretty low echelon in the military. So that's that. The, they're both very similar in that case which makes them very different from the United States, which doesn't have a strategic level of their electromagnetic warfare or EM spectrum operations organization or leadership. So that's kind of one example. But another area is there's a wide divergence between China and Russia. You know, so China has a very comprehensive system of systems they've devised under their concept of system destruction warfare that they're going to use to target every one of the nodes and, and linkages between our, our forces, our own system of systems. So they're going to go after Link 16 and TTNT and CEC, and, and they're going to go after the platforms like the E2s and the E3s that are providing the network nodes. So they're going to, they've got a whole comprehensive system of systems that go after every little piece of our system of systems. The Russians don't do that. The Russians build you know, a system of systems that more or less can address the West or Eastern European competitors they have, NATO and the United States, and then they tr- sort of test that out. But then they have a very improvisational process for concept development, and the Chinese have this very rigid process of capability and concept development. So from the U.S. perspective, the response is, well, do we need to have you – know, our technologies should probably focus on adaptability, agility, 
the ability to respond in real time uh, and move uh, th- across the spectrum, uh, move both in, in spectrum as frequency as well as you know, location and beam width, et cetera, giving the Chinese a more adaptable enemy to have to prepare against, which is going to be difficult considering their very rigid approach to concept and, and capability development. A more agile U.S. force is going to actually create an advantage for us relative to them. And then against Russia, we might find ourselves more of a symmetric competitor. So if we're going to be more agile in the spectrum and more agile in our concepts, well, we're probably just beating the Russians where they kind of are. And we're going to have to trust that our technology uh, is going to be superior to that, that the Russians are able to bring to bear. So that, that that's kind of how that ends up playing out when you look at two different competitors, when you have one military that's having to face them. In the report, you discuss system development and you mentioned the need to invest in systems that obviate rather than overcome some of the asymmetries that you have listed, especially in in the context of Russia and China. Can you discuss how you proceed with this uh, notion of obviating an adversary's capability and, and how does that affect the strategy of system development? Yeah, so if we think of China as the pacing threat, because they will have this very comprehensive approach to system development and very, you know, methodical way of developing new concepts that leverage those systems. So if we focus on them and we think, okay, the with civil military fusion, the Chinese are able to develop a wide array of systems, um, adapt them you know, relatively quickly over time, and then continue to counter our own EM spectrum capabilities. Um, so we are going to be, if we get, if we get into a move counter move competition where they build a jammer and we build a change to our radar and then they build another jammer and then we build another change to our radar, we're never going to get ahead. You know, so that they, they just have by the, by able, by being able to tap into their commercial industry and fuse it with their military industrial complex, they're able to tap into a, an array of technology development that, you know, is, it's not better than ours. It's just they can con- they can do it faster and they can do it on a more comprehensive basis than we probably can realistically do. So let's you know stop trying to match them system for system. And that gets to that first area of asymmetries to say there's some things we're just going to have to not try to compete on. So let's not try to compete in the move counter move of I'm going to build a new system to fix a problem that your new jammer created for me. I'm going to you know we should instead step back and say well we need to build more adaptable systems that leverage you know, artificial intelligence, cognitive uh, controls that allow them to create new techniques, move across broader areas of spectrum, change their beam location, beam width, to be able to adapt in real time rather than trying to do this system versus system competition over a longer haul. But then the question is, well, where, where does that adaptability need to be applied? And that's where we said, okay, well, these other asymmetries offer an opportunity to think about that. So for example, the geographic asymmetry imposed because the U.S. is almost always the away team in these conflicts, um, and then the, the Chinese and Russian are home teams. So they can use installed sensor arrays, they can use hardware communications, they can put in place a sensor network that's largely passive um, in a lot of ways, that can use either lower frequencies that we don't necessarily plan against, and then they can take advantage of their hardware communications to prevent our jammers from being successful. So all of those things would suggest we need to be focused, we need to turn around and focus more on our own ability to avoid detection. So we need to think about passive sensing to a much greater degree which means you probably need to have networked passive sensors, given the fact that you know geographic diversity is necessary if you want to try to get good targeting locations on a on an emitter. We need to think about if we're going to do offensive EA, uh, we need to probably put that onto something that's going to be expendable because it's going to get detected right away in the in this environment next to China. So we probably need to think about smaller form factors, uh, networking those systems together to get collaborative effects or coherent effects, and then be able to deploy those in a way that that can get them into the targets that we're trying to address. 
And then uh, the last part of that is um, protecting our, our systems from detection, even if we have to go active. So there's going to be situations where you have to use an active sensor like a radar because it's missile defense and a passive sensor is not going to give me the the accuracy to do a surface to missile surface to air missile engagement against an incoming weapon. So I got to use an active radar. Well, then that active radar should be an LPI LPD radar. So it should have, you know, really narrow beam width. So it's not detected outside of its, its beam. It could be a really low power or adjustable power. It can operate for a very short period of time and use a passive cue to help you know, orient the, the beam so that you're not, you know, radiating everywhere, but instead just at the incoming target. Those are all, you know, in the EW community or in the in the EMSO community, we talk we call that EP, you know, so electronic protection is what we call that. But those are all operationally relevant to offensive operations. If we want to go into the Western Pacific and go up against China, uh, be able to compete in the spectrum, we've got to adopt all of these technologies that we call EP, which makes it seem defensive, but in fact they're needed to enable offensive operations. So that's one example of how that geographic asymmetry can play out in terms of the technologies we need to develop. If we do that, then that allows us to get out of the move-counter-move competition and instead maybe impose some challenges on China. At this time, I'd like to take a short break to introduce the trailer for our upcoming sister podcast, The History of Crows. Electromagnetic energy is a fundamental part of our universe. Humans discovered ways to use this energy for many purposes, from radio to TV, smartphones to Wi-Fi, the list goes on. But electromagnetic energy also influenced another major sector, military operations. Along came the crows, people who learned electromagnetic energy, applied it to military combat operations, and forever impacted modern warfare. Introducing the History of Crows podcast. The History of Crows will take you through the global history of electromagnetic warfare and electromagnetic spectrum operations, from the earliest scientific discoveries to modern military operations around the world. If you are a student of history or are curious about unique contributions to military operations from the turn of the 20th century to present, subscribe now to The History of Crows on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are found. Welcome back. I'm here with Brian Clark, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute. We've talked a little bit about organization, doctrine, and technology. And there's another leg to this stool that you discuss in your report, and that's training. Specifically, investing in live virtual constructive training environments and techniques. Uh, can you go into some of the recommendations you propose in your report? Yeah, so one of the interesting asymmetries we found was that the Russian and Chinese militaries are not really pursuing an MSO-like concept. I mean, they're not pursuing a concept that looks at you know, all the activities in the spectrum as being interrelated and potentially synergistic you know, or conflicting. They just sort of treat EW, sensing, communications as totally separate activities. Uh, and then electromagnetic battle management really just consists of spectrum management. Um, so they're just like looking to deconflict those activities, you know, probably through procedure, procedurally doing so, um, as opposed to in real time, you know, managing them simultaneously and maybe even using one to support the other. So that's unique to the United States uh, concept of EMSO. So we should really lean into that. So that means technologies for EMBM are probably, uh, along with those for EP, the most important technologies we should be pursuing. So cognitive EMBM, 
you know, even non-cognitive EMBM. So taking today's you know, EMBM-like systems like the real-time spectrum operation system the Navy has or uh, the Army's EW planning and management tool, you know, those are the kind of inception of an EMBM tool. We should be embracing that and fielding it in an operational way very, very quickly. That also means there's a whole training aspect to this that we need to address is, you know, how do we you know, get people to start thinking in these terms of, well, I, may, I might be able to use my communication signal to also help me with sensing, or I can use my jammer to you know, decoy, uh, or I can use it to jam, or I can use it to maybe you know, provide a illumination of a target that I'm going to then re- receive through a passive you know, detector that's going to pick up that reflection. All of those things relate to this idea of, you know, of electromagnetic balance management at EMSO, so I got to train people to do that. Well, it, that's hard to do if you want to set up some kind of training event on a range because it's expensive to do it that way. And also, you know, signals intelligence satellites now are available commercially. They're they're commercially providing data to people as well as the military end of uh, of SIGINT. Uh, so if we do that in open air, it's going to reveal potentially our tactics to China. So we had to think about how to do that in a virtual or constructive environment, which also gets to a key kind of asymmetry we found as well is that. The Russians do a lot of their EW training uh, in the real world. So they go out and they're using the, the, the Middle East now as more or less a live, a live, a live fire uh, uh, electromagnetic spectrum operations training range uh, in Syria uh, in particular, and then also in Ukraine. The Chinese tend to do this a lot You're kind of inside, in the interior of the country, but they get a lot of live you know, EW type training. We don't do that as much because it's expensive uh, and because we're concerned about infringement on other activities and also the operational security concerns. So the idea of moving this to a virtual and constructive environment is really important to improve our training, to be able to really you know, lean into this asymmetry that we've got in terms of MSO. And it also allows you to push training capabilities down to the lower echelon. When we were talking a few weeks ago, I, I asked how difficult it is to train for a gray zone conflict versus a more conventional force-on-force scenario. Uh, this is particularly the case with China, How does preparing for a gray zone conflict influence training? And then how does training in turn help you project EMS superiority in the region? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So the advent of gray zone operations, which um, China and Russia both kind of stumbled into, if you read their the writings on this, you know, they both sort of started experimenting with this idea because they had opportunities and commanders willing to execute on them. Um, and then they've really embraced it. You know, so this has become like a forcing function for in, in terms of China, the development of the People's Maritime Militia. They've begun a whole set of operations around it, island building and became part of it, even though it was done initially as a separate activity. So all of those things are being, you know, weaponized, if you will, in the interest of getting their objectives at a lower level of escalation and, you know, albeit over a longer period of time than they would if they'd simply gone out like they did with the Paracels in in 79 and just taken them from Vietnam and, and fought a war over it. That model is probably not the model they want to pursue. So the important thing is then to be able to compete in that gray zone because we really have not done a very effective job of that uh, short of a couple of very notable events like the Malaysian drilling rig last year that got pushed off by the Gabriel Giffords. That, that, that confrontation was diffused by American presence. But doing more of that is going to be really important because if the PRC doesn't see any sort of back pressure, they're just going to continue to push and push and push and eventually gain more and more control over the places like the South China Sea and East China Sea. So an area where we can really enhance our ability to, to operate in the gray zone is electromagnetic spectrum operations. So you know, not just in terms of competing in the spectrum, meaning you know, we can fight through jamming that the Chinese do periodically employ against U.S. forces, 
uh, in peacetime in what we call the competition phase today that's as part of their gray zone operations. But also, so we can start to impose some of these costs on the Chinese. So if we can jam some of their operations or, or you know, confuse some of their sensing or make their um, coordination more difficult with the People's Maritime Militia, even if we don't tell anybody we're doing it, if it just sort of happens, that's an element of competition which reduces the confidence of the Chinese that they can continue down this road or, or even escalated into you know a periodic confrontation that they can maybe use to, to get uh, an advantage. Like they could say, well, nobody's really pushed back on us in the gray zone. We're going to make a gambit and try and take Scarborough Shoal because we expect that we're not going to get any armed you know, resistance to that. But if you can reduce their confidence that they've got control of the spectrum day to day, that might forestall you know, that attempt to go take Scarborough Shoal formally you know, from, from the Philippines. Now, the other piece of it is, in terms of escalation management, right now the U.S. has this significant disadvantage due to geography that comes out of that asymmetry in terms of geography, where if we push forces into the area that they're covered by the Chinese uh, weapon and sensor networks, so like the East and South China Seas, and even to an extent the Philippine Sea, we push them there knowing that they are subject to a rapid attack by large numbers of precision weapons based on the Chinese mainland meaning they're at risk. Um, so we kind of do that every day, knowing that that's a, the case because we don't expect war to break out. But that gives China an escalation advantage because they can always choose to, choose to r- ratchet up one rung on the ladder and launch a weapon at a U.S. target that's you know floating around or driving around in the, in the uh, South or East China Sea. Electromagnetic spectrum capabilities, you know, like jammers, decoys, uh, can help you know, provide the defensive capacity to U.S. forces so that it takes more than just one or two weapons to actually threaten us. You're going to have to get, you have to launch large salvos to be able to really have a have a chance of taking out a destroyer that's got a really good EW system. Or you can, you know, add decoys that now make it so there's maybe multiple targets you might have to shoot at if you want to execute that sort of fait accompli attack, which takes away some rungs on China's escalation ladder and then gives us some rungs back. You know, so there's a couple of ways that the gray zone is a really important environment to be thinking about EM spectrum superiority and why it's so important that we adopt some of these uh, technologies that allow us to operate in that area without necessarily being as easily detected because we're doing good EP. Um, we've got passive sensing and we're using, you know, attritable uh, jammers and decoys, you know, and because we are also thinking about um, how are we going to overcome this geographic disadvantage when it goes to conflict and I can protect myself um, and maybe even you know control parts of the spectrum if I need to for a short period of time. You know if confrontation turns to conflict and reduce the ability of the Chinese to feel confident in their their ability to rapidly gain a, an advantage. Earlier we talked about the need to invest in adaptive systems to reduce predictability, and I want to go back to that for a minute because there's an important topic that I'd like you to address. System adaptability really comes down to software. And in your report, when you're talking about software, you focus on open systems architecture. Can you go into more detail about your recommendations in your report for OSA? Sure. Yeah, thanks, Ken. So the, the goal of, the, of our EM spectrum superiority strategy and the goal of the technologies we identified in the report was to create this more adaptable set of capabilities in the spectrum and create more agility. So we create more uncertainty for the Chinese in particular regarding how we're going to operate, what our system configuration is going to be, um, so that they cannot use their geographic and military civil, civil fusion advantages against us. So this more agile and adaptive force, though, depends on the ability to mix and match components within systems 
as well as mixing and matching systems between themselves. So systems and systems of systems, if you will. So, so I need to be able to swap out components inside a, a radar, inside a passive sensor, inside a jammer. If I want to give it new characteristics that are beyond what's available just because it's adaptable on its own right, I also need to be able to then mix and match a jammer like a EA18G with a next generation jammer, uh, maybe expendable X50A or Q, RQ58 uh, UAV. If they're you know working together, I, I want to be able to switch and maybe have them work with two entirely different air platforms or a surface platform. So ARP and architecture applies both within the system and then between systems. So that that hardware compat uh, inter- open architecture gets to uh, things like. SOSA and CMOS, some of these open architecture standards uh, that are being pursued by the services to allow them to mix and match components inside of an electromagnetic warfare system. Uh, And then to be able to have interoperability between systems, there's new software tools like uh, Stitches, which is a DARPA program that's developed the ability to automatically write software so you can have one system talk to another system. And then also things like gateways like Bacon that allow two systems that are using different networks to be able to talk to each other. Uh, and then last, you know, the, the software-defined radio revolution, which is happening, also allows you to be able to have systems that don't normally talk to each other, be able to communicate with different waveforms, but then be able to uh, be integrated on board the system uh, software-defined radio. So it's both forms of, of open architecture, both between systems and within systems that we thought were very important to highlight as technology priorities. And over the years, Congress has been very closely involved in what's going on in DOD. What can they add to the conversation in terms of providing some accountability, providing some oversight, or just you know, simply a better funding strategy to kind of compel action in DOD? So a couple of things I think would be important. So one is they need to continue to track this governance debate, you know, which is going to play out at this point you know, within the services and within DOD, because there is a need for a strategic level organization that's going to be managing the operations of electromagnetic warfare at the strategic level um, you know, when it comes to our military operations against adversaries, but then also can provide this sort of proponency and, and doctrine development. So STRATCOM, but given, you know, with STRATCOM having been given maybe an operational role in, in actually using electromagnetic warfare at, a, at, a operation, or at the strategic level operationally, that's going to be important to continue doing. A second thing that Congress uh, should be doing is is ensuring that DoD is pursuing these technology priorities. Because I think I'm what I'm fearful of is that um, left to their own devices, the services will continue to invest in the things that support their own service equities. So they're going to continue to invest in platform centric systems that protect their platforms. You know, like the E18 gen- next generation jammer that protects airplanes making attacks on air defenses. The F-15 EPAWS that's protecting the, the F-15 from attack. So these, these platform-centric programs have a lot of energy behind them, a lot of inertia. So to get the services to move off of that is probably going to require some congressional intervention. And uh, this new approach to, to electromagnetic spectrum operations and, and the need for EMBM, that's all going to be things that are probably going to have to get driven by Congress to a degree because inside the department, they don't seem to be able to do that. And then the third area is uh, budget agility. So one one thing we've been uh, identifying, you know, at Hudson is the the need for the ability to have more flexibility in budgeting than is currently afforded. Because if it takes two to three years to make a change to a program or to kill a program that's not doing what you want it to do, that means you've lost a step, you know, against the Chinese and and the Russians. 
So having the ability to move money around at a greater degree, so maybe that's different reprogramming limitations, but more importantly, to maybe add a new element of budgeting, which we called mission element budgeting, so that the you know, OSD or uh, OSD in concert with the COCOMs can allocate funding to support the interstitial capabilities that allow a mission to happen. And those are almost all electromagnetic spectrum capabilities. So right now, there is no service responsible for ensuring that you know, all the networks can talk to each other when you get out to the joint level. COCOMs have to make things happen at the COCOM level, but there's no joint integration that happens after the services deploy a capability to a COCOM. The COCOMs left to sort of integrate all that themselves. They're not equipped to do it. They don't have a, a, a you know, resource organization or an R&D organization. The COCOMs, you know, kind of on their own out there collecting systems from the different services and having to integrate them in the field. And they hope that they work together. So having the ability for somebody uh, to be able to allocate mission element funding against you know, missions that were really important at the behest of the COCOM is going to be, I think, a really important aspect. And there's currently some work going on the Hill to try to create some test cases where we can do that in uh, the NDAA for this year. So budget agility both in terms of how can I move money around faster, and then also how do I create the ability for uh, money to be spent against a mission that, uh, that allows us to spend it on the kind of EM spectrum uh, interstitial elements that keep a mission uh, together. Those are going to be really important going forward. That's a really interesting recommendation. Has that been done in the past with other mission areas where that's been set up, that ability to allocate on per mission versus specific program? Is, is, or is this a new concept that needs to find its way into kind of normal budgeting process? So I'd say the only example where we've done that before has been Giamdo. Yeah, so Giamdo, the Joint Integrated Air and Missile Defense Office, is responsible for air missile defense. And it's got some funding that it can use to go do some technology development um, and mostly do studies to figure out where the technology development needs to go. So that's about the only case where we have an organization that has had funding to go help make a mission happen, you know, be able to, to fund what might be necessary to allow forces to combine in the field to accomplish a task that at the behest of the combatant commander. So what we're advocating here is, is something along those lines where OSD or the joint staff would work together to uh, have a person or office that is able to allocate this mission element funding. And the mission element funding would go against particular really important operational challenges like uh, air defense of Kadena Air Force Base in the Western Pacific, or you know, regaining or EMBM. You know, to say we need the ability to do electromagnetic battle management among forces that are deployed in the field. We don't have that today. Nobody is responsible for investing in that because it's a you know the EM spectrum is a joint domain or environment where nobody has authority yet. So, so that's the kind of stuff that this mission element you know, funding would go against because it's it's needed for the combatant commander to integrate forces in the field. But from the service perspective, it may not be a priority, right? Because services can integrate their forces today with their existing systems and then deploy them. And then the COCOM has to worry about how they work together. Okay. Thank you, Brian, for joining me on this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I appreciate your time. It was a great discussion. I look forward to having you on again soon in the future. Thanks, Ken. It was great being here. I really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you, Brian. That concludes this episode of From the Crow's Nest. Again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Mercury Systems. Mercury Systems is a global technology company serving the aerospace and defense industry. The company delivers trusted, secure, open architecture processing solutions powering a broad range of mission-critical applications in the most challenging and demanding environments. Inspired by its purpose of delivering innovation that matters by and for the people who matter, 
Mercury helps make the world a safer, more secure place for all. To learn more, visit mrcy.com. And that will do it for this episode of From the Crow's Nest. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.